Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times, and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. As with John Telgen, if there is a musician or musicians who have profoundly influenced me in my early musical journeys, Sandy Wilson would be at the top of the list. My first recollection of Sandy was in the local Super A Foods grocery store in Yellowknife. He used to wear this buffalo coat. Sandy is smaller in statue, and with this buffalo coat and full red-haired beard, he did indeed look like a small buffalo. He went everywhere with his dog, Dinkasaurus, a small, pointy-nosed mixed breed who totally matched his namesake. The dog would follow him into the grocery store, and Sandy would be calling out, Dink, where the f*** are you? Get over here. Dink, where are you? Until Sandy would finally wrangle Dink into the upper ledge where a parent would put their child, and Dink would stay there until they got to the checkout counter, where he would jump out onto the cashier's desk and conveyor belt. I was about 12 years old and found this highly entertaining. The next time I would have seen and heard Sandy play was when I was 15 and sneaking into the gallery in the rec hall Saturday afternoon jam sessions. I was too young to really know what was going on, but enjoyed those jam sessions thoroughly. Not long after that, I made the switch from playing drums to playing the bass guitar. I maybe had it in my hands for four months when Sandy got in touch with me to play with him at a local surf and turf place called the Cantina. He was in between bands and scored this duo gig playing jazz standards with saxophone player Colin Bergen. Colin was taking an extended holiday, so I filled in with Sandy as best I could. I just learned how to read notes on a music staff, had some rudimentary licks that I played to death to get through the gig. Sandy was infinitely patient with me, and in those weeks we played together, taught me how to improvise a bass line over a set of chord changes, the fundamentals of any improvising bass player that has served me very well over the years. After school I would head over to Sandy's place and talk music and listen to music that turned him on. I was hungry to learn, to hang out, to hear his stories and just get better at being a musician. Later on, he brought me into the band Friends, where we played six-night house gigs at bars in town, 
playing a wide variety of music genres. That gig went on for about three years before I left for music school. At that time, Sandy was a true mentor to me and through the years became and remains a dear friend. Sandy starts his interview by going back to his early musical experiences in grade school. I was singing when I was real small and I had a guitar when I was four or five years old, probably a little kid guitar, you know, cowboy on it and all that. Mm. And my mother played a little bit of piano. They bought the piano when I was eight. I thought about taking piano lessons, but I was afraid of the nuns. And I don't know why, but in those days, the nuns taught piano, and it was like, well, certainly somebody else could have taught piano, but I just saw the nuns, and they always looked intimidating. So I didn't want to take piano lessons. But I had the guitar, and my mother had a steel string Spanish guitar that she brought home from Grandma's when I was about eight, but at the same time they got the piano. So they gave me that guitar, and I played in grade two. That teacher did me a big favor. She encouraged anybody in the class who could play an instrument to bring it to school and get up and play in front of the class. So I had learned how to play Jamaica Farewell and the Banana Boat song and all that stuff because Harry Belafonte was on the radio. So I had learned how to pick up the melodies on this guitar, even though the guitar wasn't in tune properly. And then when I was 12, I decided I'd better get serious and learn how to tune the guitar. So I got a 35-cent chord book from O'Hara's Music downtown. And I tuned the guitar, and then I started learning the chords, and I can remember it took me almost a year to learn that F chord. Because <laughs> it was so hard. And then I bought an electric guitar off a guy and an amplifier, and then as it turned out it was O'Hara's Music amplifier, and he hadn't finished paying for it, so they repossessed it. The amp, that is. But I had the guitar, 20 bucks for that, and whatever it was for the amp, I lost that money. And so then I had this guitar, and then the old man went down and bought me a Paul amplifier for 60 bucks or whatever with a Tamello on it, and that's the lamp. And so I was using my electric guitar through that when I was 13. My good buddy was a very good dancer and a good drummer, and so he played bongos, and my friend Harry Ferguson had a trumpet, and I can remember we were rehearsing in the basement, and it was loud as hell. And I said to him, gee, Harry, you get another instrument you can play? And his sister Debbie played sax, so the next rehearsal he brought the sax. So then the sax worked a lot better. So then Eugene Beauchamp, he's gone now, he passed away a few years ago. He played what they called Hawaiian guitar with the slide. And so we put that band together, and no bass or nothing, just a couple of guitars and whatever. And so then we started playing tea dances. So we played tea dance at this school and a tea dance at this school. And I can remember playing at the Catholic school, St. Mary's, and we played a tea dance there, and we were playing Johnny Be Good, stuff like that, because that was coming out then. That was the early days when uh, Chuck Berry was doing this thing. Let me see, what did I used to listen to? I had a little record player. We didn't have stereo or nothing here. They didn't care about that. And so uh, I had one of those little record players and still in the basement, I was doing. But I still remember Jimmy Gilmore and the Fireballs. And the songs were like Bulldog and... And Dwayne Eddy had uh, whatever that one is, one that was a big hit. The name escapes me now. But they were simple melodies that you played on the bottom strings of the guitar, and they're pretty easy to learn. And I had a pretty good ear, so I learned all that stuff, and that's how I developed my technique. And then the Ventures were out. This is when the Ventures were still playing Fender instruments. They didn't go to... Moss Wright must have given them a big sponsorship, and they all went to Moss Wrights. But in the days when they were playing Fenders, Bob Bogle was playing a Fender Jazzman. And the other guy, Don something or other, was playing a Stratocaster rhythm. And Nookie Edwards was playing bass, probably a Fender bass. And I don't remember who the drummer was, but 
they were great. Walk, don't run, sleep, walk, all that stuff was happening. And so when I went to buy an instrument, a good instrument later, I bought a second instrument my father had bought me that amp. And then I traded that guitar in and got one with two pickups and a vibrato bar, which was twice as difficult to play because it was high action and terrible. The first one was a silver tone or something, one pickup, sounded like a million bucks, just like a little telly almost. So I got the better instrument, but it was harder to play, but it looked better, you know. <laughs> Lots of chrome and razzle-dazzle, and I had a few things out called the T-Birds. So we called ourselves the T-Birds, and uh, we were learning all the venture material. And so we'd play Playland Park. We'd go in there and play for, I don't know, 20 bucks for the band. We'd get five bucks each or something. It was gas and a place to be packed. There'd be all these kids there. And this was an amusement park down the highway. And uh, getting back to the ventures, I do remember that my friend Bruce Sherman had uh, a Telecaster and then he had a Stratocaster and then he had something else. And he allowed me to play this because he liked my playing. Because he was all thumbs. He wasn't really a player. And he let me play these instruments. So I got to play some quality instruments before I bought the Jazzmaster. And this other friend of mine had a Jaguar, which was 535 bucks or something. And my Jazzmaster was 495 And the Strat would have been 375 and And I thought, well, the Jazzmaster's got the nice sound. And the Jaguar had too many switches. And it didn't have a great sound. It was a surf guitar. All those surf guys were playing Jaguars. So I bought the Jazzmaster for 495 bucks when I was 16 in grade 12. So then we were playing for high school dances all over the place, you know, within 40 or 50 miles. We played uh, the Rowan Club dances down here. We played their Saturday dances in the summer. We played their dances. We were playing Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, and we are playing the Beatles and uh, Dave Clark Five and all that stuff we were learning. And we were playing it there at those dances. And so when we played a Saturday dance, we would go down Saturday afternoon, set up, and run through the material. Which reminds me, when I was not much older than that, I can remember going to a function down at the Memorial Center, and it was a summertime thing, and they had a band down there, and it was Grant Mackey and those guys who I later met. They were seniors, they were a couple years ahead of me in school. And I was sitting behind the bandstand, looking down on the, on the back of the band, and they had, you know, floodlights, red lights, and blue lights, and whatever, a couple of hundred people dancing on the cement floor. And I remember remarking to myself, boy, those people are having fun. These guys are having fun playing. I'd like to do this. So that led me to want to do the thing with the band. That was like when I was formative, say 11 or 12. And so, geez, that was it. I was playing. When I was in grade 10, I was 14, and we were playing all those tea dances. When I was 16, we were playing Queen's University and all the high school proms and everything. How did you get around? Uh... Well, the keyboard player, who was an accomplished organ player, he'd taken piano lessons, he had grade 10 piano or whatever, and he could play all the stuff, you know, play Mozart and Bach and everything. And he was also a redhead like me. And uh, he was a senior, and I was saying grade 10, and he would have been in grade 12. So his father was CEO of Bell Telephone down here. So they had money. And... Uh, we needed a vehicle to get around. Jack Shepard, who was a local bait guy here who had a truck, and he used to get, you know, bait, crawfish and minnows and all that stuff, and then sell it for bait. And he had a truck. And so I remember going over there, and his son, John, would be take, they'd be taking the tanks off the truck and cleaning the truck. And then we were getting the truck because Terry had his driver's license. And uh, Roger Chambers was the bass player, and he was about four years older than we were. So he was Uncle Roger. He was the older guy. He got all the gigs, especially the ones in Kingston because he was in a class with those guys that were now in Kingston going into applied chemistry and whatever. And so they needed an animal band for their dances. 
animal band being the guys that were playing top 40, and that was us. So then we had to get up there. So Mr. Blair, Terry's father, the keyboard player's father, he made an arrangement with Bushfield Motors for us to get, uh, I think it was about a 58 or 59 Dodge station wagon. And we didn't just get the station wagon, it was painted, and it had count five on the side doors and on the tailgate, written up in uh, Old English, beautiful. Yellow on a red, fire engine red car. So when we were driving to Kingston in the winter, we played there for three or four years. We played there from 64 to 67. We played Frost 67, we played Science 66. So we played three years of Science 66, their second and third and fourth year. And that was like Grand Hall, there'd be, wow, I don't know, a thousand people dancing. There'd be 500 people on the balcony, another 500 people downstairs drinking booze, and they were all getting loaded. And I remember playing little places where the, the stage at Grand Hall was about 60 feet wide and 30 feet deep, and I measured it with my guitar case. There were so many guitar cases wide, 11 guitar cases wide or whatever, and so many deep. And then we played uh, this place called the Polish Hall, which was the same size as the stage at Grand Hall, and there'd still be 200 people in there. And I can remember playing, and my guitar's going, and I looked down, and some girl was dancing up next to me, and her, she was leaning against me enough that the vibrato arm there and that guitar was, you know, they were packing right on you. And there was no stage that I remember. If there was, it was only a four-inch risers or something. And I can remember on the break, the floor was soaked. What was it soaked with? Spilt drinks. <laughs> so I'm going, wow. And I was a real naive kid. I'm like 16 or 17. I'm thinking, oh, Queen's University, you know, up, upper crust and all that. Well, they're upper crust, all right, but they're all pissed. And so I thought, well, geez, I don't know if I want to go to university or not. Everybody's drunk here. So we played a lot of those gigs. And uh, we played, for instance, at Grand Hall, we'd get $50 each. But when we played the Polish Hall, we'd only get $25 each. But Grand Hall held like 1,500 people, so they didn't have a problem giving you more money. And Lynn Tucson, who was a buddy of Rogers, he had all that stuff lined up. So we just worked all the time. And, we were playing there two or three times a month, plus all our weekend dances for the high schools and the proms. And Wow, it's great. We even played on the roof of the A&W down here in the summertime one time. And I had a lot of friends over the years say to me, I remember you guys on the A&W roof. So Dad, you know, Pop was really good to me in a lot of ways that I didn't realize till I was older. I mean, I knew I had it good, but you realize after a while how good you had it. So I wore out a couple of carpets here in my mother's living room in the old band, the first band or two, and the drummer, you know, the drummers always kill the herbs. And so uh, the old man's gone, and probably he did it as much for my mother as he did for me. Uh, you know, if you want to, you can put your gear in the basement of the Moose Hall. We only use the hall once a month, and sometimes we can't even get a quorum for a meeting. And he was running the hall, and he was the secretary, did the books and all that. So they had this dance hall that had been like an old army thing or something and they kept it and renovated it and I don't know it held a couple of hundred people maybe tops maybe a hundred 120 so when I was 14 or 15 with this first band weren't we renting the hall off of dad for 35 bucks a night and we were putting little posters up around town on the light posts and people were showing up and coming into these dances and we were playing a diddly diddly like I did when we were playing St. Mary's that time and I met Bob Farmer so we had our little tea dances there and it was an evolutionary process that when I ended up with the Count Fives and we had all this gear, the Dad says, well, you can store it downstairs. And I said, okay, can we rehearse down there? Of course. Probably that was the thing in the back of his head, get him to hell out of the house, you know. Like. So we rehearsed there, 
And when I was in senior high, say 11 and 12, we were playing Queens. And if we had a bad night, we'd rehearse on Sunday. And so we rehearsed four or five days a week. After supper, go up there and rehearse from 7 to 11. We were just starting to do the Beatles by the time I was in grade 11, I guess. The early Beatles stuff, it was great. Long Tall Sally and She Loves You and all that stuff. I played that in the band before the Camp Fuzz. Anyway, uh, we were practicing doing our things, so we had lights. And Sid Atkinson down there that had built the amps for us, built us a set of lights and with pedals. So he had a pedal for running the lights. It was like a keyboard, black and white. Just like a keyboard, like a half an octave of the keyboard or something. And so Blair got to do that. He was a keyboard player. So as we're playing, the lights are changing. Blue, red, both of them together, all this jazz. And we're doing our little shoe-bop-bop bop thing where we had worked out all these steps. Then we probably got all that off of that Tammy show and stuff where you'd see these. There'd be a show at the movie where they have all these bands. Uh, James Brown and all that stuff. And that's what these black cats did. They did all these steps and everything. Made, it was a show. You could see a visual thing going on. It wasn't just standing there singing. They were actually moving around and dancing, and it was entertaining. So we were doing that to some point, and uh, we had a singer with us. Sorry, interrupt. What did you call them? You called them Tammy shows. It was the Tammy show. Was the name of the movie, and that happened when I was in still high in high school, and it was at the old Capitol Theater down here, and it was called the Tammy Show, and that's the first time I'd ever seen James Brown. Was, was that just one show, or was it a series of shows? Of well, it might have been a series of shows in the states, but that's the only one I ever saw, and it was actually at the theater, and so it was all these bands. And it was like watching some of these videos of the Beatles, where the Beatles aren't the head act. They'd have two or three guys, and then they'd have the Beatles, and the Beatles are incredible. Then after the Beatles, would be some doo-wop band from England that was real popular then. They were bigger than the Beatles. But when the Beatles sang, you could see there was magic there. When these other guys come down, it was sort of like, ah. The Beatles were shining like diamonds right from the beginning. I'd never seen James Brown before. James Brown had a real act. James is singing. The guy comes on, stage guy. Pats him in the back, takes him off. No, no, no. Throws his cloak back off. He goes back up. Please, 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 please me, please me. And then they throw the cape over him and they start to take him off. No, no, no. You throw that all off and you go back to the mic and finish it up. And you ever see that guy dance when he was singing? James Brown was something else. And I'd never seen it like that before. And I go, wow, what an eye opener. So, of course, we weren't trying to do that, but it was a real inspiration to see what could be done. Yeah. Why did you come north? Let me see, I'm trying to remember. I quit grade 12, second year in May, and I hitchhiked down east. And I spent the summer in, in uh, New Brunswick and Grand Falls and on PEI. And then when I came back, the next year I went to Vancouver. And so then when I came back from Vancouver, then Pounder was going north, and I'd already been east and west. I thought, why not go north? And I'm ready for it now. And the old, I used to come back for the winter, and the old man would say, this is in the hotel, you know, because I was in my early 20s, like Carmen's age. And so it was like, what the hell are you doing, you know, like, this ain't a hotel, because I'd come home and make myself at home for the winter, and then I'd leave again. So when I went to up north, it was with Pounder, Michael Pounder. The vehicle broke down in Saskatchewan, so we spent a week in Saskatchewan hanging out with, some, this guy's name was Randy Cutouts. So he came along, and we broke down the side of the road, and, you know, they're very generous people out there. So he took us home. It was about four or five of us in the vehicle. So he took us home to the farm, and they put us up in the old farmhouse, let us stay there. Well, and then we, I remember being over at the big farmhouse, and Mrs. Cutter was cooking a big Sunday dinner and looking after us and all that. And her brother taking a calf into the vet that wouldn't suck or whatever, and we went with him and drank beer the entire time and were hammered. Holy mackerel. But those people were so generous. 
And so then Pounder's going, well, you know, I got to be back in the only for the whatever, and I got to be back for my job. So we hitchhiked to Edmonton, which, I don't know, was four or 500 miles away, but we got there in a day. And he paid my flight into Yellowknife, and I landed on June 21st, longest day in Yellowknife, in 1972. So I landed on the longest day, the first time I'd ever been on an airplane, and I landed in Yellowknife. What was your initial impression of Yellowknife? Well, I was disappointed. I was thinking there was going to be wooden sidewalks and all that stuff, and there wasn't. We were uptown, and it was all modern and this and that. But, of course, the old town was sort of like that. So I did get that bit of history that I wanted to see in the bush pilots. You know, when I was a kid, I was reading bush pilot stories and had all this. My father was a Scot, so all those books from Scotland come over Boys, Collins Boys Annual, and they'd be full of stories. And so I can remember having quite an interest in bush pilots because you sure as hell weren't going to see that here. And so when I went up there and actually saw bush pilots and stuff and all that stuff in the old town, it was very, very romantic. And so the first year I was there when I stayed at the Grey House, I did quite a few photographs of the, the planes in the old town in the winter up in blocks and stuff. And then I did watercolors from that. And because uh, I'd taken fine arts in, in that year I went to college, right? That was my thing. And so I took those photographs and made watercolors. And do you remember the bookstore that was in the bottom of the Lang building? There was a real nice guy who ran that place. And I took those watercolors in there and he put them up on the wall and I sold them for like $60 each and I sold a half a dozen of them or more there and I'd done them at my desk in the gray house from the photos that I had that I'd taken that winter I had my instrument so when I played I would play with uh, whoever was hanging around at the youth center like I told you in the cafe there and those guys would be playing okay just to hold you back there okay so you, so you landed on June 21st who did you meet like when you first just in those first few Days, weeks, okay, months. for starters, it was Brock Villian's there. Okay. See, Sinbad had been there. And I don't remember if Sinbad was there then, but he told me about it when he was in Brockville here, and I was enthusiastic to go up and check it out. Because he was, you know, telling about how groovy it was and everything. And uh, so, here's the, you'll, you'll get off on this. First night we were there, we stayed in that old boat that was on Jolliffe Island. Remember the barge that was pulled up on Jolliffe Island? There's people living in that thing in the summer. The mosquitoes were horrible. Terrible. But uh, I still remember we stayed in Jolliffe Island on that thing, and the, Paul and his girlfriend were living in it, and they were Brock Fillions, and his father had a cleaners here. And I knew him, I knew him from here in town Paul's in hippy-dippy days. Yeah, Paul Durant was his name. And uh, so we stayed there the first night. And then after that, somebody said, oh, there's a house up town, the Gray House, where you can go and stay. So there's four or five of us, including Pounder, staying in the Gray House and paying Wayne Bertrand's father across the road 20 bucks a month for the house and so i stayed there right up until the the winter I'm trying to remember his name that's terrible do you remember the father's name anyway I, I remember he had an ulcer so we drank rum with milk so i used to go over there on uh the last friday of the month or whatever and i give him the rent and uh i drink with him so i'd have this rum and milk white rum and milk the gray house would, would that have been the one that was in behind the gallery no, that was GT's old place later. No, the Grey House was where they built City Hall. Wayne's father was living across the road in the Red House. And that's where he lived. Stan, Stan Burton. So Stan was there, and so Stan's going, Jesus, Murphy, see, you, know, you guys are paying me 20 bucks a month. The, the taxes are 60 bucks a month. Now me, the old Scotsman here, goes, Okay, Stan, how about we double the rent and I'll pay your taxes? Sounds like a good deal, don't it? It was only 100 bucks a month. So, double the rent was 40 bucks, the taxes were 60 bucks a month. So I said, okay, I'll give you 100 bucks a month. Oh, yeah, okay. So then I go over there every month and give them 100 bucks and get drunk with them. 
This concludes part one of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Sandy Wilson. You can scroll through the show notes to listen to part two. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.